ka ki te puku, ka ora te tangata. When the stomach is full, a person is satisfied and well. E nā iwi o te mutu, no piki mai, no kake mai ki te hōtaka nei a te ahikā. Ko Maraia Rakuraku tōku ingoa. Kia ora, I'm Maraia Rakuraku and this is Te Ahikā. In this week's broadcast, we're with Māori from one end of the country to the other who are helping to shape academic scholarship, artistic practice and retain cultural integrity all while squeezing busy lives in between. It's, it, it is a very, very hard process because at the same time you're trying to educate them but then also they have their own process that, that they go through and then so... Is and it like frustrating, said, um, educating? Uh, yes and no, no. Yes and no. No, because because pretty much the, the more that somebody understands about the piece, then, then obviously the more you can give them about the culture without them realising. Kia ora, Lewis Gardner, he joins us soon. The year is 1981 and Matiurata is advocating the retention of Māori seats, which at that time were four as opposed to the seven we have now. The country is about to be rocked by the divisive Springbok tour, so with the catch cry that political systems don't mix with sport, apartheid is very much a word being bandied around. Therata, what is your reply to those people who say that having a Department of Māori Affairs and four Māori seats in Parliament is separatism and apartheid in reverse. It's what, it's what I would call a confusion, confusion about the principles of equality with conformity. The express purpose of all of these institutions that often been cited is surely to make up, to make up the handicaps that exist in a society that regards itself as, as free. In other words, you, while the theory of equality exists, in practice, it's false. Then, as back to present day, Justine is at Māori Market with glass artist Rongo Kirkwood before law lecturer and author Ani Mikaere talks about some of the topics she covers in her book He Rukuruku Whakaro, Colonising Myths, Māori Realities. I think you can't claim to speak with any authority about anyone's story but your own. So really, to pretend to speak authoritatively about something that you don't know or that you haven't lived... I think is arrogance in the extreme. Nā reire e te iwi, koera i tahi o nga kōrero mō tēnei haura. That's coming up this hour on Te Ahikā. You're listening to the sound of Te Ahikā with Justine Murray and Maraia Rakuraku. She's your boy, Taina. Ko te kaupapa tua tahi, first up. Danielle Hayes, remember her? The freckled, stunning-looking Māori girl from Kawarau who was a 2010 winner of New Zealand Next Top Model. Well, she's now the face of glass jewellery artist Rongo Kirkwood's campaign. Kirkwood was one of the artists showcasing her work at Māori Market this year. Uh, Justin Murray, Radio New Zealand National Tiahika here at Māori Market 2011. You can hear the background noise. It's because there's various events taking place. They've so got the loudspeakers going on here at Te Paraha Arena. But I managed to catch uh, Te Rongo Kirkwood. Kia ora, Te Rongo. Kia ora. Can we just start off, please, by you telling me where you um, we were born and raised, your iwi and your hapu? Sure. Um, my, I'm a Tainui girl. Uh, Waikato and a little bit of Taranaki there as well and I was brought up in Auckland. Brought up in yeah. Auckland. 
So we are here at your space at Māori Market. Tell us about your pieces. Um, well, my work is kiln-formed, uh, fused and slumped glass. And um, so we've got here a range of uh, you know, wall sculptures and um, then freestanding sculptural pieces and jewellery. Yeah. So you said kiln. So a kiln is that clay oven? Yeah, the same um, equipment that you would use to create works in pottery can also be used to create work in glass. And so um, my process is... Um, using sheet glass similar to what a lead light glass right. worker would use yes. but I layer it so I get a thickness there and then I basically cut it out like a puzzle put it together and put it on a kiln shelf slide it into the kiln and cook it until it melts into one piece so that's my process which is a little bit different from glass casting where you would make a mould of a shape and then melt glass into the mould but that's still kiln formed glass it's just a different slightly different technique now we've got there's quite a few things like in front of me what it kind of looks like a, a wings of a manu but I'm not too sure if that is what you're trying to portray? What is this piece? Yeah, you're quite right. <laughs> Why? What's, what's the um, concept behind this? Oh, it's um, more about. Um, I suppose it's really a, a symbolic reference to um, personal growth and expansion, and finding your wings, as it were, finding your song, being being true to yourself, and and uh, your, your, your life's purpose. Who helps you name your pieces? Um, you? Yeah, I pretty much um, come around and about to the, <laughs> the name. Sometimes it's there at the beginning of the piece. Sometimes pieces you know, um, evolve and, and sort of get a life of their own and I don't know where it's going. I sort of, sometimes I'm led by the work, if you know what I mean. So this piece in front of us, um, Te Rongo, um, Manu Waiata, um, Kotetsu, $14,000, that's the price of this piece. How do you figure out a price point? Well, it's um, a lot to do with the, um, the technique used, the amount of time that's gone into the piece. Um, that's taken into account and also um, quite often these bigger pieces are one-offs and um, you know, a huge amount of um, work has gone into them and yeah, so that sort of dictates where the, the price bracket is. <laughs> so if we sort of turn around um, some other pieces, are these what, 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 what do you call so, these? So, so some of these pieces um, are sort of uh, abstract, if you like, uh, sculptural, decorative pieces, and then other pieces, um, are, whilst decorative, also functional sort of platter-like forms, w yeah. which you could sort of array a beautiful sort of little selection of sweet chocolates <laughs> or a little bit of sushi, something like that. That will look fabulous on my yeah. table, at the marae table. <laughs> What does is this your first Māori market? No, this is my second. Yeah. How does this help you? I mean, other than um, promoting yourself, really. I mean, we've got your own like stall and your, your cards. What? How does this help you? Um, well, really, for me, it's it's uh, just a wonderful opportunity to um, to be here with other Māori artists 
Uh, that, you know, that's a huge thing. I, I'm, I'm pretty isolated out in my workshop, uh, workshop in the middle of nowhere, you know. Where's and the middle of nowhere? Hamilton? No, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, not Hamilton. Well, I'm just north of Auckland. Oh, yeah, okay. but rural living, you know, I don't get that much exposure to other artists. So there's that aspect of it. Um, but also, you know, it's a wonderful opportunity for the public yeah. to see so much contemporary Māori work all at once in the same place. Totally. We left out the piece de resistance. What is the, it's almost like feathers hanging yeah. down. What, what? Yeah, so this is a, um, a two and a half metre uh, chandelier um, oh. and it's based on kotare feathers and um, that's why I've used all those different shades of uh, blues and turquoise colours with the iridescent glasses in there as well. And so, you know, where I live, um, we've got quite a few um, ponds and things like that. And so the, the kingfishers, I've got three pairs of kingfishers that live uh, by my house. And um, it's, yeah, they're just such beautiful birds and I'm a bird lady. <laughs> <laughs> yes, with your long hair and you've, yes. <laughs> so I just love birds and everything's about birds and feathers and wings. and. Well, you can see it. Actually, it's reflected in your art. How did you get Danielle Hayes involved? Um, well, I have uh, just done a new range of um, jewellery for, um, f- you know, sort of fashion, sort of catwalk, catwalk uh, style jewellery. And um, I just loved Danielle's look. And <clears throat> so when I was looking for models to, to wear the work for, for this shoot, uh, the strength that 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 she has, she's such a, a divine looking creature but she really carries um, uh, that beautiful, strong Māori woman uh, essence, she, she carries that and, and, and so that's why I used her in, in, uh, in the shoot for my uh, jewellery range. Your jewellery range and what's the name, oh, so we've got some jewellery here what's the name of your range? Um, uh, well, well, this this particular one here is um, the Bloodline series, and so that's all to do with uh, Whakapapa and uh, being connected to everybody. Kapai, te rongo Kirkwood, kia ora. Kia ora. And kia ora to you, Justine. She was talking with Rongo Kirkwood, no Tainui Taranaki at Māori Market this year. And if you'd like to see any pictures of the event, please head to our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. That's T E A H I K A. Ani Mikaire kicks a few myths to the curb when it comes to tikana Māori, tikana tāne and tikana wahine and the relationship between Māori and Pākehā, coloniser and colonised in her recently published book. Fitting then that it's called He Rukuruku Whakaro, Colonising Myths, Māori Realities. I caught up with Ani recently on a beautiful otaki afternoon. He Rukuruku Whakaro. What does that mean? It took me quite a while to choose the, the name for the book and I had some help. Um, and eventually, uh, with some advice, I hit upon He Rukuruku Whakaro. We're using Rukuruku in a, in a few different senses. Firstly, uh, the idea of Rukuruku being to gather, gather things into a small compass, I think is what the dictionary says. So it's a, a small collection of thoughts or ideas. 
Um, the second way in which a view Zukuruku is referring back to the Te Rukuruku uh, Whakautirangi, who is, um, I suppose, one of my heroines of the Tainui Waka tradition. Um, Tell me about her. I really enjoy reading about Whakautirangi because she came on the waka. Um, I think there's often a slight sense that the woman who came on the waka, well, you hardly ever hear about them for starters. That's Tainui Waka? Yep. Yeah, well, generally, you don't hear an awful lot about women who came across on the waka. Um, they're often referred to in the accounts as the wife of so-and-so, uh, and not often in terms of their, their particular roles or the expertise that they brought to bear. So the thing about Whakaotinangi was that she came um, and she clearly was specially selected for a purpose, which was to bring the kumara, which, when you think about it, is about survival of the iwi. And to me, that means not only that she was a, an awesome gardener, but she must have had an awful lot of knowledge and been able to... Well, I guess she was a scientist. She was a horticulturalist. They must have trusted her to be able to adapt that knowledge to a to a totally new environment. So she brought the kumara. She protected it. She brought it here. Um, she planted it all by herself at Aotea Harbour. You know, she dug the ground. She sowed it. She cultivated it, and she ensured that the people would live. So she fulfilled her role? She fulfilled her role. She took her responsibility very seriously. Now, the other interesting thing about Whakaotirangi is that when she came, she was a grandmother. She had mokopuna on the waka with her. So that tells me something else, which is that often the woman who came on the waka, there's almost an implication that they came to be childbearers, um, you know, to produce future generations. And it's quite clear to me she did not come here for that purpose. She came here because she had expertise, because she was responsible, because she could be trusted, and because of her, the iwi lived. So um, calling this Herukuruku Whakaro is also kind of a nod in her direction as one of my heroines, um, and as someone who exhibits the sort of characteristics that I think are to be admired, and uh, that mighty woman exhibit all the time, everywhere, in fact. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's also referring to that. Uh, and thirdly, we talk about Herukuruku Whakaro as being the idea of... Um, a delving into or an exploration of ideas or yeah, thoughts. So there's those three kind of meanings tied up in, in the title. Because the book actually contains essays that you have written over time about different subjects. And if we could just go back to uh, Wahine who came through on the waka, you've actually got a few chapters in there that actually look at the way in which uh, what colonisation has done in terms of our tikana and in terms of how Māori women are viewed. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, this is work that I've been doing for uh, quite a while now, really. Um, I suppose that growing up as a Māori girl and then young woman, um, I was always struck by the contradictory messages that one had about the value of being a woman. Um, you know, on the on, on the one hand, we were told that we were the fare tangata and all those lovely messages, but on the other hand, there's always a sense of almost having to be apologetic in some way <laughs> for being a woman, and there was, we seem to be hemmed in by lots of restrictions. Yes. Um, I remember that as I was yes, growing up. Yes. Don't do that, don't do that, but you're very precious. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and the idea... Um, that women were there to support the men folk was the way that woman of a couple of generations older than myself spoke about it. But in fact, the very woman, I remember my grandmother spoke about supporting the men folk. Um, but in fact, when I looked at her, it was clear that she was a very strong woman in her own right um, and that she exercised leadership roles of a certain kind. And when I got older and looked into it a little more deeply, she had inherited those roles from her mother. 
And so when I really started to look at our own iwi histories, there were all these very powerful women <laughs> right throughout our whakapapa who were clearly not just there to support the men folk. Um, that's not to say they didn't support the men folk, but, but the idea was that the women supported the men and the men supported the women, and, and it wasn't an unknown thing for women to be strong and powerful and to play all sorts of roles, military, political, you know, you name it. Uh, they seem to be there, the stories about them are there. So that started making me wonder really how it was that as a young Māori girl in this day and age you would grow up with the sense that perhaps women didn't fulfil leadership roles or that women were there just in support roles or that women had to be careful about doing this, that or the other and we were restricted. We were there to these... bear children. And that we were there principally to bear children and, and nothing else. So um, that's what really started me looking into that um, that kind of field, I suppose. How did we, how did our present day reality, if you like, match with um, the messages that you got pretty clearly from our tikanga, right back to the stories about our atua? Um, and how does it? Well, it doesn't. <laughs> There's been a disconnect, really, between those very powerful atua wahine and a lot of what we're told today. Um, and so I, I guess for me the next question was, well, where has this come from? And because I had spent a long time studying Pākehā law, I knew that there was a very strong tradition within uh, the English law that came here that regarded women as chattels and, you know, as being, you know, barely human. Um, and so it, it wasn't too hard to figure out where that kind of uh, distortion of our tikanga may have come from. And then when you started looking at the impact of Christianity um, it, all of those, all of those um, new ideas that were brought to bear upon us, um, the fact that the men who came here made certain assumptions about who the leaders were, uh, went to the men, went to the men, um, perhaps made the men feel important, um, encouraged the men to buy into the idea of a hierarchy, <laughs> and the thing, the thing about a hierarchy is that. Um, Oh, there's, a, there's a writer, a uh, Cherokee writer by the name of Andrea Smith, and she puts it really well. She says that the uh, First Nations cultures in North America were not hierarchical in any way, shape or form, but that when the colonisers went there, they figured out that if you're going to oppress or take over a society that's not hierarchical, the first thing you do is you have to introduce the notion of hierarchy. You have to get them used to the idea of hierarchy. And she said that patriarchy was a first step. And, of course, it's sort of genius, really, because if you can convince half of the population that they're better than the other half, um, then you immediately sow the seed, the idea that there's a hierarchy. And once you convince people that hierarchy is the natural order of things, you then encourage them to accept their place within it. And is that what happened to us, to Marvin? I really do believe it is what happened to us. I believe that, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not speaking of all of our men, but I believe that to some extent some of our men were approached, were uh, cajoled, um, were, I guess, manipulated, if you want to put it that strongly, into believing that they were, in fact, more important than the woman, that they were more important than some of the other men. Um, and by being made to feel that they were more important than some other people, they could then accept their place in the hierarchy, which was subordinate to the white men. Uh, and I, I think that the colonists did quite an effective job, I'm afraid. So if we were to look at that hierarchy, was Pākehā men? Pākehā men at the top. top. Absolutely. And um, then as you go down? 
Now, it's hard to say. I, I suspect they still probably regarded their woman ahead of the Māori men. <laughs> so it's a bit, bit tricky there. I don't know who they would put first. Um, but Māori, well, anyway you look at it, Māori women Māori, were clearly at the bottom. At the bottom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Whoever occupied the middle middle ground in that ranking, Māori women clearly were at the bottom. And that hierarchy still exists today? In some people's minds it definitely does. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I, I Probably in the last 10 to 15 years, it's refreshing to see more people are questioning it. Um, but uh, it's still and it's kind of an unspoken understanding amongst an awful lot of our people. Uh, uh, and I should say probably almost it's a subconscious. You know, uh, many of our people aren't even aware of it. Uh, which in some ways makes it more dangerous still. Mm. So what's happened is an absorption of that has moved into tikana Māori. Yes, I believe it has. And it's become accepted mm. as that's just tikana. Yes, I believe so. And, I mean, it sounds as though I think um, I'm talking about there's some kind of malice involved, say, with our men. I don't believe there was. Um, but, say, if you just very, just one really easy example. If you were to look at, say, te kawa o te marae, now we always... We, we tend to defend the marae as the, like the final bastion, if you like, of tikanga. Um, and so we get very worried if someone tries to suggest we, we should change anything, you know, or make any, any kind of alteration or pander to anybody's Western ideas. But if you look at what happens in te kawa o te marae, I suspect that over time the female roles have been diminished and the male roles have become inflated. Um, so that, you know, there are a number of people who talk about queer from generations past who when they did the karanga that really was their speech they would karanga for as long as it took them to say what they needed to say um, and they, they fully occupied that female space and they played that role um, to the fullest extent that it needed to be played but these days more and more um, it's become the case that the karanga is almost kind of an it's brief, it's perfunctory, and in some places it's regarded as kind of an optional extra. Um, whereas the real business of what happens in those you know, rituals of encounter is the fai kōrero. So even if you read a book like uh, Hui by Anne Salmon, you know, that is full of comments about, um, about you know, the real way to earn mana and fame in Māori circles is to be a, you know, a master of the fai kōrero. And there's lots of corridor in there that that um, but it definitely was, puts was the Was that of her off. time though? It was definitely of her time, but it's not that long ago, you know. It's yeah. it's it's not like it's the 1800s. It's not even 40, 40, It's less than and forty years ago. It's less than forty years ago, and I think it's probably still regarded as quite a major text. Which brings me to the mm. question of scholarship. Yes. In your book, you've in one of the essays you've mentioned how. We, as Māori, we need to be looking at our own sources of information as being vital and as having scholarship, and that doesn't happen. Yeah, one of the problems is that, that Pākehā have, until very recently, have virtually had the monopoly on publishing materials about us. You know, so the the influence of people like Elsden Best and Percy Smith and James Firth... Um, is vast, you know, because they got in there at the turn of the century, the you know, very early 1900s, and they produced a huge amount of material on us. Um, and 
once again, I'm not saying that they, I mean, I think they genuinely believe themselves to be friends of Māori people. But inevitably, they saw us through their very white, male, patriarchal eyes. So they interpreted things, you know, in their own way, as we all do. Um, but they kind of cornered the market, if you like, in material, published material about Māori. So that even, say, in the last 20, 30 years, even now that more Māori are writing and producing, um, quite often when we look, the most readily accessible materials to us when we engage in the, the quite Western idea of scholarship is material that's been written by people like Best or Smith or material that's been written by others based on what they wrote. Um, and so it's really, they've had a huge influence uh, on ourselves. I mean, if you go to any... Uh, university library in the country and go to look at you know the shelves that they have uh, for Māori studies you know a huge percentage of the books there have been written by people like Elston Best and they're still being used as standard texts um, I hope that these days we're, we look at them a little bit more with a bit more of a critical eye than we used to but I'm afraid I still know lots of Māori who will quote uh, people like that ad nauseum as experts on us and um, be surprised when they're challenged on that. So is the key for Māori to start writing and publishing their own, our own books? We absolutely have to publish and write our own books. And, and probably one of the main reasons why I did this book, um, well, I've written about it in the preface actually, is uh, in the introduction, is because I was challenged to publish more of what I talk about uh, for the simple reason that people need access to material written by Māori. Uh, so we really do need to do more of that, but we also need to be very careful about the way the sources that we rely on, the way that we interpret those sources. Um, often you, it's easy to think to yourself, you know, there's, there's no material out there that I can base what I'm, you know, writing on other than material that's written by Pākehā. Uh, and it's true if you, if, you know, there's an awful lot of material out there written by Pākehā, but there is some stuff written by us, but also, sometimes the material is there, we just need to see it, you know, so if you look, for example... But also value it. See it and value it. But So, for example, when I started writing about uh, wahine Māori, I, I realised I need to go back and look at our own stories, at Papa Tuanuku and, and Ranginui, and a lot of those stories have been told and retold a hundred times, and many of them are really patriarchal and horrible ways actually, quite offensive ways some of the ways in which those stories have been told but there's nothing stopping me as a wahine Māori now going back, looking at those stories and seeing them through my eyes, seeing them through Māori eyes and interpreting, interpreting them in a way that, that makes sense to me there's no reason why I have to rely on Percy Smith's interpretation of those stories. But what you're also doing is Engaging your own life story in the process as well, That's and right. is that a very, is that a new thing for Māori to do? Um, perhaps it's almost as though, I think some of it has to do with that whole Western academic thing that you know that sometimes Science we feel like, yeah, we have to write objectively and we can't locate ourselves within what we're writing about. Well, I think that's rubbish. I mean, we all know that objectivity is a myth. We all know that those those white men that wrote things seemingly from an objective standpoint, there was no such thing. You know, their own their own view of the world was woven right through everything they wrote. So 
Um, I guess what I'm really, what I really encourage is for us to be unapologetic about the fact that yes, I am a Māori woman. I'm a mother. I'm a this. I'm a that. And I, the way, the lessons that I take from the story about these Atua, um, of course, are the product of um, yeah, my life experiences and and how I connect with those stories. Um, so yes, my book is unapologi unapologetically subjective. Um, I make no apology for that. I think you can't claim to speak with any authority about anyone's story but your own. You know, so so really to pretend to speak authoritatively about something that you don't know or that you haven't lived, I think is arrogance in the extreme. You know, um, a, a woman who. Um, um, Mohawk writer Patricia Montier Angles, who sadly passed away last year, she wrote about you know trying to write in academic journals and having these Pahi editors come along and take all the I, we, all those words out, and they thought they were doing her a favour. But she said, you can only tell your own story, you can't tell anyone else's, and you should never presume to try to. And I agree with that. I always encourage my students to like, locate themselves within what they are writing. Basically to stand up and own what you're writing. You know, don't hide behind a kind of a myth of objectivity because I won't believe it. It's not believable. I don't believe anyone could be objective and we shouldn't try. Mm. It's about being honest, really. <laughs> All right, so that's good for your students who are located in a, in a very Kaupapa Māori campus, academic environment. One of the uh, comments that you have made in one of your essays is about maintaining cultural integrity as a Māori person when the environment that you're operating in is the antithesis to that. Yeah. How do you do that, Ani? <laughs> it's a daily struggle for all of us. <laughs> um, and I mean, I, I suppose I felt that conflict most um, immediately when I was working in an environment, you know, like the, the Pākehā Law School environment, uh, and I don't, I'm not confronted by it quite so regularly now that I work at, at Te Wānanga but I mean, of course, you step outside the gate and we're confronted with it again, so it, it's a constant challenge for all of us, I think, to live in this, this world that's being constructed around us, <laughs> that is the antithesis of being Māori. Um, and I suppose for for all of us, I think what you do, the, the test I used to apply to myself when I worked in, in law schools uh, was that can I, still, can I still look at myself in the eye tomorrow? When I get up tomorrow and I look in the mirror, will I still be able to stand the sight of myself or will I have compromised, you know, one step too far? And so I kind of played these constant games really of, you know, well, I need to draw a line somewhere beyond which I won't go. Um, so there were certain things I would not compromise on. But there are other daily small compromises that I made all the time because the fact is you cannot you cannot challenge every little thing. That would be too energy draining. Well, it would be too energy draining, exactly, and, and you're not going to win all those small battles. So what you tend to do is you conserve your energy, um, you decide which battles really count, uh, and then you try and you hope you'll have the bravery and the fortitude to fight those battles when they come along. And sometimes, um, if you're working somewhere like a law school, you have to just decide, well, it's time to walk away um, and to go somewhere that's a little more affirming. 
<laughs> and where you can have the time and the energy to do the work that you really think is important instead of just fighting rearguard actions and trying to defend yourself all the time. Even then, though, it's not that black and white, eh? Because you can be still confronted with um, things that question your cultural identity as a Māori, even within a Māori environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I suppose what I've figured out, and the, the book kind of traces this journey a little bit, is that um, instead of wasting my energy trying to um, change the way that Pākehā think, um, that energy is probably much more effectively utilised on trying to encourage Māori people ourselves um, to, I suppose, to peel away the layers of colonising rhetoric that have been built around us and that just threaten to suffocate the life out of us. And that process can be transformative? Absolutely, it can be transformative. Uh, and I find that every day, actually. W working with Māori people is so much more rewarding I find, because um, when you talk to our own people about a lot of these issues, um, you're not telling them anything they don't know already, but it may be the first time that they have had the ability, the space, or felt sufficiently safe to articulate what they've really known all along. And yes. that, just that alone can be very liberating for people. And one, um, in, in one of your chapters you actually talk about that, about how in talking with Māori, they may not know the language of polo freer, yeah. but they do know what the feeling is. They know the feeling. They have, yeah, they have that gut feeling. They know that something's not right. Um, they know that there's an, an injustice or, you know, a, a multitude of injustices. Uh, they may not quite know how to express, they may not know exactly the detail of how the injustice came about, but they know, they know that it's happened. Uh, so I think it's really important to give people the space to explore that. And, and sometimes those discussions, uh, people can get really quite angry, um, but they will eventually move through that to a place, it's, it's always better to understand the nature of your oppression than just to be blindly angry at it, I think. Um, you because can actually, you get stuck? Yeah, yeah. Well, just feeling angry and not knowing why is really not very empowering. But if you can at least understand the nature of the oppression, how it's come about, you can start then to dismantle it and to think about strategies for responding to it. Kia ora. Animi Kaire talking about her book, He Rukuruku Whakaro, Colonising Myths, Māori Realities. Now, details about Ani in the book are at our website. RadioNZ.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. I'm Maria Rakraku and you're listening to Te Ahika. Male stamps were once a centrepiece of everyone's daily life and their images were a significant part of our culture. I mean, remember the monarch butterfly on the 10 cent stamp or wondering which nativity scene would make it onto the Christmas issue? So how much of a thrill is it to see your design on a stamp and then mint it as a coin? Well, I met artist Lewis Gardner in Rotorua at his Tapuia studio where it's all on the D-Lo. New Zealand Post had come to me uh, originally and, and said, can I do them a, a, a hey mato for their stamp collection? And um, so what we do is we go through a series of um, design processes um, they sort of made suggestions on what they were looking for, so they selected what they, they basically want. 
uh, I went through and carved, carved the Hei Mato for them. And then so that became part of their Matariki Stamp Series 2011. At the same time, they had actually commissioned Te Puya to also do one. So on that one there, we did what we call a pākahawai, which is using multiple materials and then bringing them back together. So in that sense, I've basically managed to get two um, Hei Mato-inspired um, stamps and in, in part of the Matariki stamp collector. So a Hei Mato, for people who don't know, would be the, the uh, stylised fishhook. Yeah, yeah, stylised fishhook. Um, it's, and it's, a, it's pretty much a difficult one too because um, a lot of images that, that they were pulling um, and calling them Hei Mato technically was not correct because of the way some images they were pulling were actually functional hooks. So, so does, does that mean, Lewis, that as a practising artist you're also put into a position of having to educate... Yes. the people who are commissioning work off you at the same time as being the creator of that work. It's, it's, it, it is a very, very hard process because at the same time you're trying to educate them but then also they have their own processes that they go through and then so... Is and it like frustrating, said, um, educating? Uh, yes and no, no. Yes and no. No, because because pretty much the the more that somebody understands about the piece then, then obviously the more you can give them about the culture without them realising... Um, you know, it's good to see a lot of culture in there, whether or not they're doing it as a marketing ploy, but, you know, to me it is important. And so, you know, any culture that is highlighted on an international stage is, is beneficial to us as a people. Pākahawai is um, a traditional uh, mato form, which is usually made up of multiple materials. Um, traditionally, they were um, a wooden shank, a power um, insert, which used to be sitting on the inside, and usually a bone barb either out of um, you know some material more often than not it was like albatross bone because it was quite dense and quite strong and flexible and then it was generally all lashed together um, you know with the lashing process so it was a functional hook so yeah um, yeah that's basically what the Pākaha was. So with the uh, 2012 Māori Art Coin uh, what they actually done was they selected the um, the Heimato design from the um, Matariki stamp collection and reproduced it in a um, collectible coin these collectible coins are going to be um, released in a silver and basically a gold-proof coin. Um, the the thing that's quite unique about this coin is there's an introduction of some new things, particularly with New Zealand minted coins. Uh, one of them is um, the introduction of Māori language, so basically they've got hei mato and then uh, Tara, so that's quite new in the sense of a minted coin. Usually it's always in English and in and, and a numeral sense. And the other thing that they've introduced is they've actually introduced little slithers of ponamu into the coin, which is another quite a new thing that, that they're actually doing. Now, the mintage of the coin is actually quite a low mint. Um, you know, there's a lot of factors that are, that are quite thing with this new coin is the price of gold is really expensive these days. So they're only minting about uh, 250 gold coins. And I think the mint is about 2,500 silver coins, so they're actually a very low mintage. Um, you know, it's, it's something that New Zealand Post has actually done quite a lot of, and they're coming up with new ideas all the time. So so these are potentially collector's items? They are definitely collector's items. Um, on comparison to other Māori um, coins that have been released, like uh, the date of 2010, I think they released um, Charlie Wilson's Heitiki coin. Um, the gold coin had a mint of about 3,000, and that basically sold out. Um, in 2002, I'm not sure, I'm not 100% sure, but then they re-released the Pukaki coin, 
So the, the Pukaki gold coin was released at approximately about $1,200 a coin. And they sold out very, very quickly as well. And a good example of that is um, I think the book value on those is about six and a half to eight and a half thousand now. But a lot of people, you know, believe that the value of those coins was about ten thousand dollars. So from a collector's point of view, these these that aspect, but also particularly things like Pukaki, it has such a strong tribal image. Where is Pukaki? Uh Pukaki is here from um Okay. Did you buy some coins? Oh, hopefully I get given some. Oh, yeah, true, true. <laughs> you know, three and a half thousand. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, got a, got a shady three that's, and a half. That's a lot of real tickies to sell. <laughs> hey, so, um, I mean, is it a bit of a buzz seeing your work in coin, seeing it in steam? Um, I'm probably um, I'm probably pretty um, sort of modest about that thing, um, and that's probably just, just around being a, um, a, pra pra a practitioner. Um, so... Like, like one job to the next is you know it's just working to to I hate to say it to survive, um, you know, sure um, we can sort of joke about um, always trying to make coin but literally make a coin that's you know probably not the right thing to say. Um, I think anything more out of it, um, yeah, uh, I, I, I think personally um, it just helps in the sense of the profile. Um, because obviously to get acknowledged in something like this is, is really, really important for the overall picture of how you work. So, um, you know, a big part of, of myself is, is to sort of, you know, try and maintain, like, integrity and, and you know, try and get the things right, and, and so to a point where I'm sort of really, really happy with what I do. But being a typical um, artist, you are never happy with anything you do because it's just a, a stepping stone to the next challenge and, and to strive and do something a bit better and it's something a bit different, so... Yeah, it's, uh, I've never been big on that stuff. Kia ora, Lewis Gardner, no te arua, nā tiawa whānau apa nui, naitahu. It's 1981. The country is about to erupt into what will become known as the moment New Zealand lost its innocence. It's a Springbok tour. The national government is in power, Rob Muldoon is Prime Minister. First past the post is the electoral system and it has been two years since Matiurata left the Labour Party and formed the Manamotuhake Party. And then, as now, an election issue was the abolition of Māori seats. Broadcaster Whainata is a presenter of Te Puna Wai Kōrero, and that's what we're about to hear now. with this week's Te Puna Wai Kōrero. Today we look at Māori representation in Parliament and should it be kept or is it an anachronism? Dr Robert Mahuta of Waikato University says the time is right now for the seats to be done away with. A meeting called by the churches in Auckland last week reached the consensus of opinion that the Māori seats should be retained. I asked 
Mr. Matsurata, the president of the Ropu Manamotsuhake, for his opinion on this. Well, firstly, can I say that I'm fairly familiar with Dr. Mahuta's long advocacy, which is really a political tragedy as distinct from a uh, uh, from uh, one which expresses political reality. Now, as such, the only thing that surprises me was the timing of his statement, since there is considerable Maori political activity and involvement at the moment, which sort of uh, outdates, as it were, that kind of call. Um, and I'm sure that Dr. Mahuta uh, is entitled to his opinion. I think we should, should also look very closely at the fact that in, in speaking this way, Western Maori, Western Maori electorate, happens to be the biggest Maori electorate in New Zealand, the largest majority in New Zealand of Maori people, which I would regard as a clear expressed mandate for the maintenance of Maori seats in that electorate alone, not counting the others, of course. In other words, you cannot ignore the fact that of all of the Maori seats, it is the Western Maori which has perhaps the largest number of Mr. Mahuta's people who have expressed themselves in no uncertain way as to their attitude to Maori seats. What is your attitude towards the Maori seats and the retention or abolition thereof? Well, I have long advocated and it, until such time that Maori people have decided that the, the usefulness in their political needs have been met. I'm confident that Maori people can be expected to make their own decision. In other words, whatever the theory may be at the moment, and this has been a long argument, in order to get it into proper perspective, you need to look at the, you need to have a historical perception. It was not the Maori who created Maori seats in 1869. It was created by Parliament to meet their convenience. And as a consequence, we now have a situation which is quite unique. Um, Whatever successes it may or may not have had over the years is, I think, irrelevant at this stage. The danger for us is that however good the theory may be on paper, and that while I accept uh, that uh, Maori seats are not forever, the Maori people need to be trusted as to their own decision on when and how. And I think we can be thought with dangers after, if I may put it more bluntly, at the present time when our people are suffering considerably economically and having difficulty culturally and socially, and you add this burden politically, you know, quite apart from the fact that four, four, in, uh, four birds in a hand is better than 20 or 50 in the bush, or put another way bluntly, uh, under current trying conditions for Maori people, it is either Maori seats or petrol bombs. And it is completely naive to suggest merely to gain a, a theoretical exercise, which every Maori accepts, uh, I think is fraught with danger, and that the benefits that are being promoted are political capacity to be met in other political parties. They've had 142 years to show their worth. And I think we can draw the conclusions that we could, we're likely to end up, for example, there's hardly any ready acceptance or confidence of, say, the Minister of Maori Affairs, Ben Couch, or Mr. Roston, or Mr. Wynne Peters. And I'm not reflecting on their personal integrities as such. I'm merely saying, is that what we're going to have? People who owe their allegiance to others, although they are Maori, and I have no doubt that they 
uh, they feel my, uh, we are trying to obtain a position where the Maori is reflected in its own right. That is the central issue. Manamotuaki itself is saying we adhere firmly to Maori seats. In fact, there's even an argument for an increase according to their population. Manamotuaki also says that despite the fact Maori seats are not forever, the time to consider uh, abolition is if and when our country and parliament as a whole have decided to restore our Manamotuaki as a people to us. Only then should we give some thought to it. Mr. Rutter, can you prophesy how long this would take? It's as long as the country wants to hold us up. We should not have the responsibility of putting years or date. That's not our responsibility. Our country, our fellow countrymen, all of the institutions, Parliament is the one with the time bomb on their hands, not us. Uh, you know, what I'm saying is, we've been asking for it since the Treaty of Waitangi was signed. That's 142 years ago. The longer they withhold their commitment, the longer I think Maori people will continue to resist any attempts to change. It has become a Maori institution in its own right. I think, uh, despite the fact that they've always strongly held Labour for the last 30 or 40 years, they have always tended to be pro-Maori, in my view. In other words, they are Maori institutions regarded as such. Now, I don't think Maori people should neither feel guilty or apologise or even be asked to say, well, shake it up. That's not our responsibility. When our countrymen falls into line to the partnership we entered to in 1840, I'm confident that Maori people will respond to the goodwill and respond to the positive call of our country. Mr. Rata, what is your reply to those people who say that having a Department of Maori Affairs and four Maori seats in Parliament is separatism and apartheid in reverse? It's what, it's what I would call a confusion, confusion about the principles of equalities with conformity. What they're advocating, what they're advocating is to is to strengthen monocultural society. Everybody must look alike, feel alike, see alike. And I'm not talking about if... You see, the express purpose of all of these institutions that have often been cited is surely to make up to make up the handicaps that exist in a society that regards itself as, as free. In other words, you, while the theory of equality exists, in practice it's false. So that if the task of those institutions uh, to bring the Maori people up to the, to the starting line of equality, there can be good reason for its abolition. In all instances, they have a job to do. Let them do it. Let them do it to a point where we, we will not need them as leaning posts. In fact, Manamotuhake is merely saying that all of these have become leaning posts, and we're trying to boot them away where they are no longer useful to us. We are the sole judges of that. No one else is. After all, I don't tell people who who are in need of a social security help to, that we should throw the social welfare department out because it's, uh, uh, it's uh, unequal, uh, nor do I suggest it. No, I think that New Zealand, as a bicultural country, must recognize what this means. It must recognize the requirements of institutions. You see, most people are totally ill-informed. It's like people who claim you get privileges from Maori affairs uh, from Parliament. Now, that too is false. The fact is, the vote Maori affairs of, say, of an average $54 million from the taxpayer is equally false because at least 80% of it is returned to the consolidated revenue account from Maori development schemes, income and repayments, and as such, they are in fact in credit. 
Now, the MEF, which many people like to regard as a, as a, as a, as a, as a kind of a, um, a privilege, for every dollar, $10 raised, $7 if it comes from Maori sources and from Maori people themselves, there is nothing to stop our countrymen are doing the same. And uh, those are but a few. The trust boards, which is money come, these are monies which are the property collectively of Maori people. None of them are of privilege. And I think that one of the things that's uh, inhibiting, inhibiting an understanding of the benefits that can accrue from a bicultural country is the total ignorance. And I think perhaps we are partly at fault, maybe, for not uh, acquainting the public with the realities of it. I think that Maori people, additional to making it known to their people, should not hesitate to have a program informing the public about these things. It is helpful to get enlightened debate. Mr. Matthew Rata, President of Tiropu Malamotuhake. At the time of compiling Te Punawai Kōrero, Dr. Robert Mahuta was not available for comment. I'm Maraia Rakraku, this is Te Ahikā, and that was an archival recording from 1981. Māori electoral seats were increased in 1996 from 4 to 5, then in 1999 to 6, and in 2002 to 7. In fact, Robert Mahuta, who was advocating for the abolition of the Māori seats, is the father of Labour MP Nanaia Mahuta, who has held the Māori electoral seat, which was known as Tainui, but is now Hauraki Waikato, for the past nine years. And for additional information about this kōrero or any others you've heard in the past, you'll find it at radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. And if you want to get in touch with me or Justine Murray, you can at te ahika, T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A, at radionz.co.nz. Ka ki te puku, ka ora te tangata. When the stomach is full, a person is satisfied and well. Ko te whakamarama o tēnei whakatauki, so the, uh, the translation of this whakatauki is really about uh, feeding your manuhiri. When you expect visitors at your house, you ensure that you have uh, a cup of tea and a kai for that person. It's all about manakitanga and hospitality. And the same applies uh, to the marae. When you um, have the, uh, the whakanoa or the kapu tea and the kai, uh, ensure that your visitors are well fed. Nā reira kuera, te whakamarama o te whakatauki mo tēnei wiki. Ko Justin Maria Hau, kia ora. Kia Justine. Now that's us for this week. Next week, I'll report back on a five-day hui that ended yesterday in Waioho, where its sole purpose was to whaka ora papatuanuku. And if you want to know what that means, make sure you listen in. And Justine, she's at Te Hotu Manawa Marae in Palmerston North. Now before we go, nā mihi aroha ki te whānau a te kauhoi wano me te whānau whānui a parihaka, kei te pauri tonu mātou. He mihi tēnei ki nga kai kōrero i tēnei wiki, he mihi anō ki nga kai rā wiki wiki mihini. Huki mai he te rā rātapu, mai te whānau a te ahi kā ki a tātou katoa, mauri ora.